0: I love the book of James. It is a practical book. Uh, James, uh, half-brother of Jesus, will work through some of the background today. We really won't look into very uh, many passages or verses today. Uh, We'll concentrate really on verse number one and kind of lay some foundation, some background for this great book. But as I mentioned earlier, it is referred to sometimes as the Proverbs of the New Testament. And there have been times when I have been working with a young believer that I have uh, asked them to, to read the book of James uh, early in their uh, Christian life to uh, gain some uh, just real practical wisdom for daily living. And you can see that James, and his nickname by uh, some Bible scholars is James the Just, because he has such a zeal for righteousness, for obedient, holy living, and James, he, he, he doesn't mess around. He got saved a little later in life. He had rejected his own half-brother, Jesus, for many, many years. After the resurrection, James gets saved. We don't know exactly how old he was, but James got saved a little later in life, trusted in Christ, his half-brother, who he had at one time rejected and basically said he was out of his mind. And now James had come to saving faith, and you can tell as he is pastoring the church there at Jerusalem, an early leader in the church, James has a zeal and a passion for righteousness, for holy living, and for helping the church. This is primarily a Jewish letter written to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, as we read there in verse number 1. So there is a distinct Jewish flavor to this epistle. But we understand by the inspiration of God, the preservation of God's word, though the immediate recipients were Jews scattered abroad in the dispersion, we know that this book has been preserved and was inspired by God and provided by God for us today. And this short epistle is extremely relevant as the Word of God always is. The, the Bible is not an old relic. The Bible is not an old book to be set on a shelf and looked at in some museum. The Bible is living. It is alive. And it is always relevant. And we see these truths in the book of James being so very practical and so very relevant to our lives today. There has been... Uh, very little debate as to who the human author of this book is. I've already identified him as James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, some uh, speculated that maybe James the Less, the son of Alphaeus, who is mentioned in Matthew 10 and verse 3, Acts 1 and verse 13. But again, there is no other scripture recordings of James the Less. There is not within the early days of the church any record of James the Less penning uh, these, uh, these words in this epistle. So James the Less is, is not seriously considered as the human author. There's another James in the Bible, James the father of Judas, not Iscariot, the father of Judas who was not Judas Iscariot. He's identified in Luke 6 and verse 16, Acts 1 and verse 13. But again, he was not seriously considered, though he has identified in Scripture He is also not seriously identified both by the lack of a a strong scriptural record uh, or the record of church history in the early days of the church. James, the father of Judas, was uh, not one identified as having penned this letter. So then there's uh, another James in the New Testament, one that we would probably recognize, James, the brother of John. James and John. Sons of Zebedee, he obviously had a very or relatively prominent role, uh, being one of the sons of Zebedee, and he's mentioned uh, in the gospel accounts. Uh, he had been involved, obviously, as an apostle of Jesus, had a ministry of preaching and evangelism. But in Acts twelve and verse number two, we 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 read that Herod began a persecution. Of the church, and in Acts 12, in verse number 2, James is martyred. That would have been in the early days of the church. Now, about that time, Peter also is imprisoned. So, James, the apostle, was imprisoned, and then shortly thereafter, Peter was imprisoned. We don't know in God's sovereignty and God's providence why God allowed James, the apostle, to be martyred early in the days of the church, Acts chapter 12, and for Peter to be delivered. We don't know, but we trust that to God's sovereignty. Maybe in glory one day we will, we will know, understand these things better by and by. But we see that James was martyred, and surely God used his martyrdom in, as some have said, the, the martyrs of the church kind of sowed the, the seeds of the church, their blood uh, sowed the seeds of the church. So we know that God would have used and did use James's martyrdom all at the same time. He delivered Peter, and Peter continued to preach the gospel. And eventually he was martyred as well. But he is not seriously considered as, a, as the human author of this book, of this epistle, uh, because of his, his early martyrdom. So that leaves us with James, the half-brother of Jesus and brother of Jude. He's identified in Matthew 13 and verse 55, Mark 6 In verse number 3, and then also in the book of Jude, verse number 1. As I have mentioned already, he was the half-brother of Jesus, half-brother, because, of course, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, of course, is the God-man. He had his humanity from his mother, Mary, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was 100% God, 100% man. We spent some time... Uh, dealing with that doctrine in the book of John, And won't we'll rehearse all of that. Our our little finite minds, our little pea brains, <laughs> pea sized brains, uh, are are uh, it's hard for us to comprehend some of these great doctrines. But it's good for us uh, to think deep thoughts about God according to the scriptures. And we know that James was the half brother of Jesus. Mary did not remain. A perpetual virgin, and her body was not assumed up into heaven without dying a natural death. okay? So Jude, excuse me, James, brother of Jude, so we know at least Jude and James were biological children of Joseph and Mary. Mary did not remain a perpetual virgin. She had other children. Of course, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, virgin birth, and that is a foundational, fundamental doctrine that we hold to. And if there is someone who denies the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, who denies that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, they are heretics. They are teaching a false doctrine. The virgin birth is that essential to our faith. It is a foundational, fundamental doctrine. But James, the author of this book, identified clearly by the early church, the church did not take a vote in a council to determine the 66 books of the Bible. Okay, The church already was recognizing, using, copying, delivering, passing around, the 66 books of the Bible, particularly the New Testament in the early church, they had the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was already uh, being well used, they had the Hebrew uh, scrolls, the Hebrew text, but the Septuagint was widely used in a uh, Greek culture, in a Greek Roman culture, the Koine Greek, that was the original language of the New Testament. Jesus himself and the apostles would quote from the Septuagint when quoting from the Old Testament. So the early church had the Old Testament, and then as the New Testament books were written, and as they were passed around to the church, there were specific gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see the letters, the epistles, and we'll look at, again, Wednesday night, the involvement of Tychicus and Onesimus and some of those individuals who were Helpers along with Paul, and they were part of the ones, some of those were individuals who were delivering letters to the churches. We see churches like Colossians and Romans, Philippi, the book of Philippians, epistles written to specific churches. Well, James was not written to a specific church, but James 1, in verse number 1, he says, "...to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. So James wrote this epistle and he intended for it to be spread among the early church, the early believers, and particularly to be received by the Jews, Jewish believers. Again, there was no council that came along and voted on. Yes, there were councils in the early church. Oftentimes they met because of attacks upon foundational fundamental doctrines and they were dealing with those. But the early church recognized the 66 books of the Bible, recognized the New Testament books. They were profitable to them. They were written by an apostle or someone closely associated with an apostle. And James was closely associated with the apostles. In Acts chapter 15, it was James who led the church at Jerusalem in helping work through how the Gentiles were to be received into the church. And one of the ways in which the early church recognized James's authorship is that the similarity between Acts 15 and the letter there, the vocabulary, the writing style of Acts 15, that letter from James matches so well with the epistle of James. But it was the Holy Spirit leading the church, James having written this book by the inspiration of God, these are the God-breathed very words of God, as this epistle, as this letter, was transported, often by foot, maybe by horseback or donkey or camel, and now is being taken, and it is being spread throughout the Greco-Roman culture, around the Mediterranean Sea, as the Jews had dispersed, and it was being received by Jewish believers, by the early church. And it was clearly the hand of God. Yes, James, the human author, but it was clearly the hand of God, the breath of God that delivered these words. And James is the human author recognized as having penned them, but having done so by the inspiration of God as he wrote the very words that God would have him write. Again, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, James had a testimony of having received Christ as his Savior later in life. Many of you have a testimony like that. You didn't get saved at a young age. I'm thankful that I got saved at a young age. My mom is here. She spent some time with uh, the, the, the younger two as we took the older two down to college. And, and I, I'm so thankful for my mom and my dad who shared the gospel with me from the, the earliest days. And that uh, little... I don't know, cracker box house that we had down there on Rosson Lane in Pensacola, Florida. As we were having family devotions, my mom and dad shared the gospel with me. I had a great pastor there at the campus church, Dr. Bob Taylor. He preached the gospel. I heard it in my kindergarten, first and second grade classes. I heard it at home and God convicted me as a, as a young boy and I got saved right there in our home. I'm so thankful for that. I never, ever, ever want to look down at the fact that I got saved at an early age. Don't ever want to look down upon the fact that God has given me 40 plus years of being a saved individual. And I don't ever want to look down upon that and say, oh, I wish I'd have gotten saved later in life. I wish I'd have had time to sow my wild oats and do all kinds of sins and and then gotten rescued. I, I don't ever want, how could I ever despise the riches and the forbearance of God? I have been given a a tremendous stewardship. I am going to be held into account for having been saved at a young age. And it's a conviction upon my heart. It's a burden upon my life that I use what God has given me for his glory, for the Lord, that I serve him. And been given a tremendous privilege. Some of you got saved later in life, like James. You know what it's like to get saved later in life and having Some sins and some regrets and and, and God forgives and God overcomes. And you're thankful for that grace and that mercy of God in your life. You look back and you are so thankful that you are not what you once were. That you have been saved out of that. And you are ashamed of that past. And you are thankful that God had mercy upon you. And by his grace, he delivered you from that. And such were some of you as we read. In 1 Corinthians, chapter number 6, I believe it is, we are so thankful for the testimony of a James, who for a period of time, he was that little brother, half-brother, who was probably that one saying, oh, there's that Jesus, he's that goody-goody two-shoes, Oh, there he is again. He's always, always mom and dad's favorite. I, right? You know how it is with brothers and sisters and the sibling rivalry? And they play the fair game. You know how it is with parents and you can do everything you possibly can to take care of a certain child's needs. And then the other child comes along and says, but you played the favorite. Well, Joseph and Mary, they literally had a perfect child. I've not had a perfect child. I wasn't a perfect child. None of us have had a perfect... But they literally had a perfect child. What was it like for James as a half-brother? Seeing his older brother and rejecting him, probably doing some share of mocking him and making fun of him. As a matter of fact... It's in Mark three and verse 21, where it's implied when they accuse Jesus of being beside himself, of being literally insane or mad. It, it, it appears that, that James might have been in that group that was mocking Jesus. We know from John seven in verse number five that he was not a believer. So James probably had some fair share of regrets. Of having said some probably not so nice things about Jesus. Of making some really inappropriate accusations. Of maybe even teasing and mocking Jesus as Jesus grew up there, as they grew up together there in that home, there in Nazareth. James, some of that passion that we see in the epistle, some of that zeal for holy living, some of that desire for believers to... Quit living this shallow, complacent, apathetic life and get on fire for God. Some of that that comes out is because James was there. James knows what it's like to have rejected Jesus for far too long. And when he got gloriously saved, he got involved in the church. God called him as a leader in the church of Jerusalem. He was instrumental there in Acts 15 as the church was debating how to simulate the Gentiles into the church. And James was used of God in a great leadership role, and was a pillar of the church. And he's identified as one of those pillars in Galatians 2 and verse number 9. And James had a zeal for the Lord, having been forgiven of his sin, having, by the grace of God, overcome his past, having once mocked Jesus, his half-brother, not seeing him, not accepting him as as his Savior and Lord, having been forgiven of that sin of rejecting him, having been forgiven of those sins of mocking him, now James is sold out 100% for God. And he's going to use every day, every ounce of his energy for preaching the gospel, for declaring the word, for leading the church. We see that. And James... We'll see as we work our way through this book, James is not a feel-good preacher. He's not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preacher. He's not a word-faith preacher. James, if I can use, I don't know if this is a farmer's term or not, but a good friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, he would talk about shucking the corn, plowing deep. James shucks the corn. He plows deep in his epistle. He's not afraid to deal with the issues of the church. He deals with the tongue. He helps us with trials and temptations and adversity in the very first chapter. He talks about not just being a hearer of the word, but being a doer. He deals with religious hypocrisy, he deals with wealth and pride. He talks about being humble. He deals with prayer, so many topics that we, Lord willing, will get to as we work our way through this great epistle. As I mentioned before, he was nicknamed James the Just because he had such a devotion and such a passion for holy living. According to the church historian Josephus, James died a martyr's death around A.D. 62. James wrote with authority, having seen the resurrected Christ, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 7, identifies him as a witness to the resurrected Lord. That also was a part of his passion and his zeal, as he wrote with authority, as he preached with authority. And he was closely associated with the apostles, even having been identified as one of the pillars of the church, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, in Galatians 2 and verse number 9, but also in Galatians 1 and verse 19, and then in Acts chapter 15, we know how closely James was associated and worked with the apostles. Though not an apostle himself as a one of the chosen 12. He wasn't an apostle in that sense, but he was a sent one in the general sense, a called one. And he took that calling very seriously. And he was... Worked, he worked very closely in alignment with the apostles. So we come to James chapter 1 and verse number 1, and we see in this opening sentence, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see, first of all, James as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, a servant. He identifies himself as a servant. Literally, The term could be bondservant, or possibly even slave, doulos. This bondservant, this slave that he identifies himself as, this word doulos, it has to do with one who has a permanent relationship with his master and is bound to serve him for life. We see other writers, writing by the inspiration of God, identifying themselves as servant, similar to how James starts his epistle. Romans 1 and verse number 1, the apostle Paul identifies himself as a servant, a servant of God. Philippians 1 and verse number 1, Paul and Timothy identify themselves first as servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1 and verse number 1, Peter the apostle in his second epistle identifies himself as a servant of God. And then John in Revelation 1 and verse number 1, he does the same. We see each of these men humble, stricken with the fact that they are first of all servants, bond servants, slaves of God. They don't come out and hold up a title of apostle. They don't come out, yes, they recognize themselves as apostles. There are times where they identify themselves as an apostle. But their first and foremost identification is that of servant, as bondservant. Literally, it could even be described in some cases, in some contexts. This word dulos speaks of a slave. Owned by someone else. Having no actual rights of their own. That word doulos Again, the idea of a permanent relationship with a master bound to serve him for life. James wanted to be known first and foremost as a servant. I know that goes against our culture. I know that's not the way our world operates. The world operates by various titles, letters after people's names. It disappoints me sometimes when when pastors trying to build a kingdom unto themselves here on this earth, they have to have doctor and I'm not against reverend, I understand, I don't like the word reverend. Uh, I, I prefer pastor. Uh, I was called Pastor Brent for 19 years, so I, when, when, when God called us here, I said, call me Pastor Floyd, um, but, but, but Brent is, is fine in, in many different contexts as well. But there's so many pastors today, and it's about a title. And they've got doctor, and they've got reverend. I'm not saying it's wrong to have those titles. And there are some formalities when I fill out paperwork sometimes, and there's titles, and what's your legal title? I have to put down reverend. You know, and and I, don't really, I don't really seek that kind of a title. But there are some pastors building a kingdom unto themselves. They've got to have a little Bible college, so then they can have the title president. And then they've got to have... In some cases, a diploma mill degree, so they can put doctor in front of their... And it goes on and on and on. And then, you know, you've met people, and they have so many letters after their name, they could rewrite the alphabet. And, and they, they let you know that. They're, they're just always about their air and their prominence and their superior. They, they always have to just let you know that you are unworthy to be in their presence... And it's only by their special permission that you can even enter into their presence. You know people like that, right? James wasn't that way at all. James identified himself as a servant. A bondservant. A slave of God. And we read in John chapter 15 and verse 15 that an obedient, faithful servant is identified how? As a friend. A friend of God. We are His servants, but when we are obedient and we are faithful, God, in His mercy and His compassion and by His grace, we're not just a slave, a bondservant, a servant, but when we live an obedient, faithful life, fulfilling the will of God, serving Him humbly and faithfully, He will even identify us as His friend. Special titles. Full of meaning. When James said, "Servants, bond servant, slave, doulos," remember he's writing to the twelve tribes. Verse number one, a Jewish distinctiveness, a Jewish flavor to his epistle. So when they hear that word "slave," it may be brought back their time of slavery in Egypt that God delivered them out of. Looking around them in the Greco-Roman culture, among the Romans, they had slaves. It was common for the Romans when they would conquer a group of people to make those people slaves. In Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15, even in the Mosaic Law, a freed slave who loves his master and chooses to be his permanent servant, bond servant, we read in the Mosaic Law that a servant who loves his master and wants to serve him the rest of his life, not being freed at the year of Jubilee. And I believe there was a, 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 a another freedom at the, the Sabbath year. I know at the year of Jubilee, and I think also possibly at the, the Sabbath year, uh, the, the slaves, the servants could be set free. But a servant in Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 15, the Mosaic law, a servant who wanted to be permanently under his master, in a covenant relationship that he would serve him for the rest of his life, we read there that he would literally have his ear pierced through with an awl, A-W-L. And it would be at the doorpost of that master's house, and that servant would be standing there with his ear against that doorpost and that all would go through and would pierce his ear and it would be a mark of loyalty by that servant by that bond servant that he is now in covenant with his master to serve him the rest of his life he is owned by that master the piercing was a mark of ownership you know we as believers Our relationship with God is one of slavery, of bond service. We are servants. If the apostles and James would refer to themselves first as servants of God, and they were some of the greatest Christians, some of the greatest leaders, some of the greatest preachers, if they would identify themselves as servants, how much more should we? But I realize that doesn't sell tickets in today's world. I realize that that doesn't get us on the fast track to a high salary and to promotions and to fame and fortune. But if we are faithful in our service to the Lord who owns us and we are not our own, we are bought with a price and we love him and we serve him faithfully and we are called his friend, then God is the one who does the heavy lifting, who lifts us up in his due time, according to his will. Because we're living for a master who is the almighty God, not for a cruel taskmaster who is of this world. Slavery in the Bible is not the same as what we think of in early American history. Even today in our world, there is slavery. There is child trafficking, sex trafficking that is a form of slavery that's international. It's around the world. There's been a popular movie, film, that has come out recently, even this summer, that puts that on display. It's hidden. It's hard to, to read about or to see, to view. Slavery has been a part of, really, humanity Since the earliest days of culture, men have sought to have power over other men. We can talk about kingdoms and empires and all the different ways in which man tries to dominate other men. And are we not in a power struggle right now in the United States of America? Is there not a bloodthirst for power? And it's not always just one particular political party. It's many times both. And there's a little bit of that because of the sin nature. There's a little bit of that in all of us. Husbands who want to be the dictators in their homes and make their wives a doormat and their personal slave. We have peer groups where young people, I dealt with it for many years in education. It's even in churches sometimes where you have power groups and people trying to dominate other people and, I've told the stories of junior high girls who every year I would have to sit them down and we'd have a big brouhaha (laughs) and somebody would bring up a hug that they didn't get three weeks ago and they've been mad at them ever since. And then there'd be the times where I'd bring in the boys and the boys, they've already dealt with it because someone's sitting there with a bloody nose or a bump on their head where they took care of it in the locker room or in the hallway. And then there were times where we had to sort all that out as well but there's a desire in our sin nature to dominate, to have power over people. And we see in cultures, even in today's world, slavery, it does exist. People taking advantage of and abusing others. So they understood the word slavery, and they understood it in its abusive forms, in its negative context, having a history of being slaves in Egypt, having seen the abuses in the Greco-Roman world, having the violations of the Mosaic law, where there were times where the Israelites brought a Canaanite group into a form of service. The Bible, don't get me wrong, the Bible never condones an ethnic-based or a race-based slavery. We must understand that the Bible never teaches, never condones a race-based or an ethnic-based slavery. The Bible never teaches a race-based or an ethnic-based ownership of another human being that denies them all their rights, treats them as some subhuman group, and denies their dignity as human beings made in the image of God. The Bible condemns that as evil. The slavery in early America was an evil and I don't want to get into all the historical ramifications of that, but one of the consequences of that was the Civil War, the war between the states, the war of northern aggression, depending, depending on your, your view. I was just down in South Carolina, and for some people in South Carolina, or even other places, the war has never ended. The Civil War is still going on in some people's minds. My point isn't to get into all of that, but our view often of slavery is what happened in the United States in the 1800s and all the consequences of that. That was an evil. It was a form of evil. The Bible never condones that kind of treatment of other human beings. The Bible never says, well, because of their race or their ethnicity, you treat them as subhuman, you you own them, you take away their rights. No, of course not. The Bible in the Mosaic Law had particular regulations for a certain type of slavery that was more along the lines of an employer-employee relationship that we are used to today. The Bible, in the Mosaic Law, yes, there were times where there were Canaanite groups that were brought into service, but there was still a dignity, unless God had commanded them to eliminate them, in the case of that dispensation where the Jews went in and they conquered the, Pal- the Cal- Palestine, the promised land, there was a specific dispensation for a specific time, for a specific purpose. And there would be times where they would bring them in as servants, as slaves. So there's all of these negative connotations. And sometimes when we read the Bible, we bring those negative connotations and we lay them across the Bible. and We try to interpret the Bible from a 21st century lens. I know I'm dealing with a tough topic here and I don't want to be misunderstood, Once again, the evil of slavery in America was a true evil. It was not a slavery that was appropriate. It was wrong. It was evil. And we have suffered the consequences of that for the rest of our our, our history, even to this day. But as James identified himself as a slave, as a servant of God, as a bondservant, There were negative contexts that came into their mind. And James is saying this. God is a benevolent master. God is our master. He is our owner. And he is the most benevolent, the most merciful, the most compassionate. Owner, master, that we could ever have. He's not like those Egyptians who were our cruel taskmasters in Egypt. He's not like the Romans who mistreat and are treating groups of people like lesser humans and taking away their dignity. He's saying they're not like these Romans and these Greeks who uphold the patriarchy and misogynist and chauvinistic ways and mistreat women. He's saying, no, I'm a servant of the almighty God, the holy God who loves us and is merciful to us and is such a great owner and master that he sent his very son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to make payment for your sins and my sins, that we might have salvation, that we might be redeemed. Where we once were a slave, a servant of sin, we are now a servant, we are a slave of God. And so many people, they are so blinded by their sin and their pride that they actually still believe that the slavery to sin, the slavery to Satan, is better than being a servant and a slave of God. And it's so sad. It's such a burden on our hearts. And it's such a sobering reality that is in the world today that people are dying in their sin. And going to a Christless hell. Because they will not submit to God. And obey his command to repent. And raise up that white flag of surrender. In, in humility and dependence. In mourning for their sin. Cry out to a holy God. And say I want to be your servant. I want to serve you as your child who has trusted you for forgiveness of my sins, for my salvation, for my redemption. And that's where James is bringing us to at the very beginning of this book. He is identifying himself as a bondservant, a slave of God. He says, I am not my own. He is my master. And he's not like these Roman leaders. He's not like those pharaohs in Egypt. He's not like all these negative context of slave owners he is the lord of lords he is the king of kings he is the master of masters but he loves us and he wants us to be his children but as many as received him to them give seed the power to become the sons of God even to them to believe on his name and it is a privilege as a child of God to serve him he is the greatest master the greatest owner perfect in every way, holy in all his deeds. We've all had a bad boss. We've all had that supervisor that we couldn't stand. I've told the story of my very first retail job. And I went to work every Friday after school. And I cleaned a restroom that he hadn't touched the entire week. And he dumped all his cigarette butts in the trash can. And the first thing I had to do was clean the bathroom... And take out a stinky trash can full of cigarette butts. And clean the whole store. Because he barely picked up a broom or a vacuum the whole week. And I straightened all the shelves. Every Friday night I knew. I was going to have to do it. I was going to have to clean up that store. Pool City on Georgetown Road, Indianapolis. Drove by there a few weeks ago. Looked over there and still can think of those early days. (laughs) Swimming pool. Chemicals. We've all had those kinds of Bosses. And we've all in those situations desired a better boss, a better supervisor. Or, well, we just get under the best boss. We just get under, And sometimes we do have to change jobs. We have to get into a better situation. But Jesus Christ is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. He is the greatest owner and master. We serve him out of love. We serve him because he has bought us with a price. He owns us as his children and he calls us his friends. That is exceptional. That is unique. No other religion in Christianity is primarily a relationship. We identify it as a religion. So I say that with qualification, but no other religion has this kind of teaching. Only Christianity. And this revolutionized the world. In the first century, there is no explanation for this book except supernatural act of God because this book would have never survived the first century had it not been for it being the very word of God, the inspired, authoritative, infallible word of God. And James writes with that kind of authority. And he says, first of all, I'm a servant. I belong to God and I must serve him with all of my days, with all of my being. We could go to Philippians 2, where we read of the greatest example of service, Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, thought not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, the name of Je- that, the, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things on the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Do we realize when we got saved in Romans 10, I believe it's Romans 10 and verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For whosoever literally... The original language says, for whosoever shall say, shall call Jesus as Lord, that Jesus is Lord. Do we realize that in that first century, as there was Caesar worship, emperor worship, that there were places that they were requiring even the head, the inscription, the painting, whatever the drawing would be, the seal of that emperor would be forced To be put in that building, in that church, that synagogue, whatever the case may be in those early church days, in a church that would refuse, the group of believers who would refuse to put that could be persecuted. So for them to say Jesus is Lord, to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, would be for them a condemnation to death. And yet they would still say it because he was not just their Lord, he was their Savior. And they were his child. And James recognized that, and he called himself a servant. May we walk out from this place once again renewed in our zeal and our love for the Lord and understanding that, yes, we are not our own. He owns us as his children, as his servants, as a saved individual who has confessed our sin, repented of our sin, placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Yes, a child, but also a servant. A servant, a slave, a bondservant of the greatest master. The purest, the holiest, a perfect master. And he is worth serving. And he is the greatest master that we can ever serve. And it is far better to serve Him all of our days, to obey Him and to do His will, than to serve sin and the devil and the kingdom of darkness. It is so much better to have the privilege of serving in the kingdom of light, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. James recognized that, and from there we will continue in our study as the Lord gives us opportunity through this great epistle, the book of James. Let's pray. Lord, we are convicted by James's humility, his testimony of having come to you and saving faith a little bit later in life, having at one point mocked you and rejected you and made fun of you, but now having humbly submitted himself and come to you in saving faith. Now he writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. With what humility he must have written that, identifying himself as a bondservant, a slave, of his own half-brother, humanly speaking, but seeing him, Lord, as his master, as his owner, as his savior, and wanting to serve him all of his days with every part of his being. Lord, I pray that that will be true of us. If there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, who does not know you as their Lord, Lord, may today be the day that they turn from their sin and turn to you in saving faith and experience the forgiveness of sin and place their faith and trust in you and your finished work on the cross and your resurrection. We pray that you do your work in our hearts even as we sing this closing hymn. In Jesus' name we pray.